This is the Secrets We Share podcast, a show about the ins and outs, the ups and downs, and the left and rights of mental health care in Australia. Here's your host, Francis Carlton. Welcome to Secrets We Share. This will be the last podcast for 2019. We will return on the 6th of January 2020 with Season 2, Episode 8, Sean. For now, I hope you enjoy listening to Deborah. Welcome to Secrets We Share, brought to you by Secret Keeper Counselling, where we talk all things mental health with clients and clinicians. There may be tears, trigger, laughters, some learning and some profanity. You've been warned, as you always are, so make yourself a cuppa, sit back and relax as I talk to Deb and she shares a few of her secrets today. Welcome, Deb. Thanks, Frances. Can you describe yourself in three words for me? Okay, I'm going to draw from something that um, a psychologist friend described me as, and I wasn't too sure how I felt about it when she first wrote it on some LinkedIn profile, but she said I was efficient. And I thought, hmm. Okay, Okay, so I had to ponder that one. Um, I'm certainly irreverent. I think my clients would agree with that. Um, But I'm very curious about people in my practice, but also, you know, in my Mm. social life. Well, curious is interesting because you live in a in a, in a space that has a history. It certainly does, Francis. Tell it's, me about the space that you live in. It's this incredible um, old convent that has been converted into a private home and um, the order that lived in this convent um, was the Josephites and they were um, Mary MacKillop's order. And I, I just think Mary MacKillop is such a kick-ass nun because... Um, I discovered recently that she was nearly excommunicated for a fantastic reason. Now, I never knew what it was, but apparently she was nearly excommunicated because she reported a priest um, who was a pedophile and they tried to drive her out of the church because she was standing up for the rights of the children that were in um, the care of the church. Um, Fortunately, that didn't come to fruition and now, you know, as most people know, she's She's I'm a going saint. to be a saint. She's, she's been, been, can- been canonised and she's a saint. And the saint has stayed in my bedroom apparently. Right. So I like to think that I'm in the loving care of um, Saint Mary MacKillop at wow. night. And there's certainly there's a beautiful energy about this place. Mm. It's um, very nurturing and yes. welcoming. But you yeah. do have things that, doors that bang and, or is that just because it's a really windy day? Um, it could be a really windy day, but this house has, you know, its own personality and its own bumps and creaks and mm. um, it can be certainly interesting um, in the hurricanes that we've had around this area lately. It's just been so, so windy. We have, and when I was walking in, I was struck by the beautiful, beautiful stained glass windows that you've got in, in a few places. Oh, it, it's just gorgeous. You know, it's it's just a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to live in a place like this and... Mm. Um, even if I'm just here for a year, it's, it's been worth it. Yeah, it's been worth it. Brilliant. How else are you curious? Um, I'm curious about people's lives and I'm curious about how people interact in relationship with one another. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious about people's passions. Uh, I'm, I'm curious about how our brains work. I'm, I'm curious about the world and and I, I think that's something that, you know, it, it it drove me to 
seek out a career as a counsellor, um, this sort of natural curiosity. Um, but also I love being with people and I love listening to people and hearing their stories. Mm. Yeah. And people do have the most interesting stories. So what what um, what what area of practice are you in? In is there a particular area, or is it are you a sort of generalist? Or so, so I classify myself as a generalist, but with some specialisations. So okay. I've got a particular passion for um, working with survivor of di- survivors of domestic violence. Um, I love working with couples um, in couples counselling. Um, I also work with individual adults. Um, but I also have a passion for um, working with teenagers um, because I guess I cast my mind back to when I was a teenager mm. and I can only imagine how different the tra- trajectory of my life might have been if I'd had a trusted adult that I could go and talk to um, at their age and to know that I'm affecting some change in that counselling relationship mm. that, that will help them as adults is, is gorgeous. So see. you didn't have that that trusted adult in your in your formative years? No, no. Counselling really wasn't something that was even sort of considered to be an option. You mm. know what I mean? It wasn't even something that came into my consciousness that you could go and talk to a counsellor. Mm. No. Who did you talk to? My friends. Yeah. And, and I guess to a degree my mum. Mm. But, you know, there were things that, you know, you're really still only disclosing to your mum at the age of 53, shocking the hell out of her. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't I tell you that, you know? <laughs> but, um, you know, my mum was certainly a confidant, but but there were still, you know, things that, you know, and maybe a lot of things that I just kept to myself and, and didn't feel that I could talk about. Yeah. I've noticed um, recently there's been quite a lot of, um, especially in, the, in social media where there's been this sort of as now, especially because we're coming up to Remembrance Day, where 1918 versus 2019 and how, you know, how the dif- the difference is in, you know, these guys, these these kids were going to war and not complaining about it and these kids, they cry and they moan about every little thing that you say. How do you feel about this narrative of, you know, that we're just soft and snowflakes these days? Okay. Well, well for- Firstly, I totally disagree with that. Mm. Um, I, I feel so deeply for kids mm. who are growing up in this era. Um, they're so overwhelmed with so much information. Um, there's never been, you know, a, a generation that has been so bombarded. And I, I like to think that our brains still are really only formed to be able to cope with what happened in this village and maybe the next village that mm. you could walk to. Um, and then maybe every six months you might hear from someone about 10 villages away. Um, I don't think our brains really can cope with the bombardment of information. Mm. Um, I feel so deeply, um, particularly for young women who um, have grown up in such a sexualized society, mm. um, the pressures that are on young women um, that have, you know, been brought about because of the media that they're bombarded with, um, I can't even imagine what it must be like to be growing up um, in a time of um, 
increasing awareness around climate change and the fear that the kids mm. might have. But if I compared it to something, it would be the fear we had as kids around nu- nuclear war. Yes. We all thought we were going to blow up any day. Yeah, I remember I remember yeah. seeing programs about that when I, I grew up in the UK, but I remember seeing programs around, around that when I was sort of, you know, between 10 and, and 10 and 12 and we were absolutely sure that we were needing, needing a shelter in the back garden. Yeah, it's terrifying, mm. traumatising. Mm. Yeah. All that vicarious trauma we had before we knew what that word meant. Yes. <laughs> so, I mean, I often, I often advise clients to stop watching the news. Yeah, Actually, I've done that stop too. It. Mm. And I, I really, to be honest, don't watch a lot of news. Um, I, I actually can't remember the last time I watched or read um, news and it's not because I don't like being educated. It's because I, I know that I feel if it's important enough, I will hear about it. Yeah. And then I can go and seek out the information yeah yeah if i if i want to know more it's a choice mm. and we forget we've got a choice mm. but when you open the portals of hell social media and you know just switching on the, the news channel you don't have any control of the information flow mm. um, but if you're actively going to seek it out and you've girded your loins and you're ready to receive that information that's mm. a different thing mm. Yeah, it can be, it can be very, very full on sometimes with social media, and occasionally, I must admit, I do find myself falling down into that rabbit hole. And then <laughs> four hours later, oh yeah, absolutely. What have I just done? Yeah, yeah. But you know, the one of the things I was talking to you about prior to this is that I have a Friday morning engagement that I go to, and it's absolutely sacrosanct. I go and I sit and there's, I call it Little Old Ladies Are Us. Yeah. <laughs> um, I bring the average age down by about 20 years by being there. Yeah. But, and I just listen and they just talk crap mostly. But I just sit there and I listen and I get on with what I'm doing. But there's no social media. The telef- I turn my phone off. I just literally just stop for four hours. And that brief interlude can actually make the whole week just disappear. Oh, absolutely. I think mine's mowing and, right. and, and, and whippersnippering. Right. That's my time when I can't hear the phone. <laughs> right. Over the sound of, you know, all the heavy machinery I'm sort yeah. of operating. And um, there's a feeling of I felt so empowered because I only learned how to use a lawnmower this year at the age of 53, and a whippersnipper. <laughs> the whippersnipper is my new favourite tool. And I, learned, I taught myself how to use that with the help of someone from the hardware store about a month ago, and right. um, I kick ass now. Is that because yeah. you suddenly took on this hectare of gardens <laughs> yeah. that you had to? <laughs> yeah, I, it sort of you know, it wasn't by choice, it was by, you know, necessity. But um, um, riding my bike, just disappearing into the void of, you know, the wind and really sort of being present and feeling, yeah. you know, the sun in your skin or the wind in your face and mm. um, that that's sort of my escape mm. from all that bombardment. Yeah. Because you can't, you can't ride a bike and talk on the phone. You can't write and text. So Oh, I've seen, I've, I, I've seen people doing that in Sydney. Really? Yeah, wow. I've, seen, I've seen people on motorbikes texting. Wow. I know, and I just, oh, <laughs> it kind of fills me with a little bit of dread, to be honest, when I see that. But, yeah, I have seen it. Yeah. It's too risky. Yeah, yeah well, the thing is, I mean, you know, the, I was um, 
I was doing some teaching um, earlier on today and we were talking about the mobile phones and about how they've actually empowered us quite a lot, but they've also done a lot of damage because mm. we are always connected. Well, we're slaves to them. I mean, I don't know why I've got mine sitting right next to me in this. It's, it's on mute. I'm not going to look at it during this chat that we're having today, but it's this safety blanket. And we've started feeling so naked and disconnected if we don't have it, you know, right by our side at mm. all times. And and mm. I'm always curious about um, clients and their mobile phones in um, sessions that we mm. have and the different behaviours that people do. What sort of behaviours have you so, observed so in So it's session? everything from they'll, ha they'll have it on vibrate and they mm. just have to look at it. And they're not going to take the call, but they have, it's this compulsion to see who's calling. And then the clients will actually answer it in the session. Oh, wow. which Which I'm like, and I, and I, don't, I don't put any restrictions around what people can do. Mm. Um, it, it's sometimes a nice, interesting window into their life, particularly mm. if they answer the call and have the conversation in front of you, you know. Um, it, it can really sort of open up a portal of communication about some aspect of their life. But... Um, but you'll be pleased to know that I turn mine off. And yeah. I, I don't have it by my side when I'm doing <laughs> counselling sessions. Yeah. I, I, I have mine in the I turn mine on to airplane mode. I, I have two. I have my I have my personal phone and then I have my work phone. Yeah. Because yeah. I don't want everybody having my personal number. Um, but I have I have them in the drawer on airplane mode next to me, mainly because my square is operated by my phone, so it needs oh, to be yeah. within reachable distance. But then I don't turn it on until it comes to them settling settling up for the session. So and then I turn it straight back off again. And I actually realised the other day that uh, I hadn't had my phone on for four days because I turned it on earlier today, and there was a text message going, "Oh, are you not talking to me anymore?" I'm like, I haven't had my phone oh. on. <laughs> Oopsie daisy. Oopsie daisy. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I just wasn't even aware that I turned my phone off. But I still had it with me and I was still carrying it with me and I still had it in my back pocket and I still was doing everything as if it was on, but it was on airplane mode. How about that? How about that? Because there's that there's that safety blanket thing. Yeah. So I yeah. pick it up and, you know, take it with me. Hadn't even looked at it because if I had, I would have seen the little airplane. Well, there you go. But then they can come in handy. So I'm just thinking about a session I had about an hour ago where um, I often get clients who are having suicidal thoughts um, to download this fantastic app called Beyond Now mm. where you can do your own safety plan. And so we'll sit in the session. I've got to download it on my phone. Clients always have their phones with them. And so I get them to download the app in the session and we work through the safety plan together. And then at the end of the session, they email me a copy of the safety plan. And so I'm armed with that, you know, if they reach out and make a call to me because for some clients I'll make myself available pretty much 24-7 mm. if they're at risk. Mm. Um, I can support them through the safety plan that they have. Mm. And so that that's one, you know, absolute bonus of having your mobile phone in the session. Another one is... Um, when I'm working with couples, I'll often um, invite them to download um, the Gottman card deck. Now, the Gottmans are, mm. you know, basically my hero, my heroes of um, couples counselling over in the US, yeah. um, an incredible couple who have done such incredible research. But um, one of the tools that they came up with um, was this card deck, which can enhance communication between a couple and help prompt them to have, you know, quite sort of uncomfortable and difficult situations. And so I can get a couple to download that in the session. 
Um, so, so it can be a helpful tool mm. to have mm. um, as a therapist. Yeah. yeah. So my 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 go to apps yeah. are one called Relax and Rest, which is a very very simple guided meditation app. Yeah. With one of the least annoying American accents in it, <laughs> um, yeah. and it doesn't have a monthly subscription. So it's a it's a like a two I think it's two dollars fifty or two ninety nine. It's a one off. A one-off payment thingy, but that, that that's one of my go-to's, and I also have a um, I also have a depression check that I that I use, oh, that with, good. With, which I can get clients to download if they want to. So when they are low, they can actually monitor that that feeling from week to week, mm. whether it's ongoing or whether it's low mood versus depression. So it's quite often oh, when clients right. come to you and they say, "Well, I'm so depressed." Yeah, <laughs> and it's like, "Well, is it actually is it actually depression or is it low low mood?" Yeah, yeah. So checking that sort of just monitoring that persistence of it, really. Hi. So that can be quite useful as well, and that one's free. And what's it called? Depression oh. check. Oh, I'll check it out. Yeah, great. Thank you. Yeah. So I'll put um, just so you know, I'll put links to um, to these apps in the blog entry um, on Secret Keeper Counselling. Right. Um, so people can access them as well so they can at least find the names of them. Fantastic. Yeah. Thank you. We're here for <laughs> <laughs> Very helpful. So you mentioned Gottman there. Can you mm. tell me a little bit more about how how they differ from or how they may be the same as relationship or couples counselling? Well, well, their approach to couples counselling, um, just in a very, very brief overview, um, many years ago they started um, observing couples and observing them having arguments together. Um, they set up a situation where couples would live in an apartment that they'd established and they'd encourage the couple to live as they would normally in their own home and they would be observed for, I think it was like something like, you know, maybe 16 hours a day. So they'd be recorded. Right. So it was um, early Big Brother then? Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. Wow. And it got to the point where I think John Gottman said he could pick whether a couple would um, get divorced within about, oh, don't quote me here, I think it was in, within about five minutes or something like that of observing a couple having an argument because what he could identify was the how regularly they use the four horsemen of the apocalypse of arguing. So the four horsemen, um, criticism, um, contempt, defensiveness and um, stonewalling. And what their research has, has sort of shown is that if a couple's regularly using those um, four horsemen in the way that they interact in arguments, um, it'll probably lead to them leaving, you know, living parallel lives, separate lives, um, that, that they'll become lonely, you know, there's the potential for them to sort of be vulnerable to an emotional affair or sexual affair and um, it's just sort of slippery slope. Um, it doesn't mean that you can't. I, I do a lot of work with couples on how they communicate mm. um, and how, how to argue because it's really healthy to argue. Mm. But it's about staying focused on the actual complaint yes. rather than targeting the person. And the temptation is always to go to, you know, the eye roll and, oh, gosh, you know, 
<laughs> you know, you always do this and um, and to personalise it and criticise the person and, you know, you never do this. Remember that time four years ago when you did that thing? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And let's not forget the affair you had ten years ago, you know, that we're meant to have resolved but, you know, I'm still hanging on to the resentment of that. So um, I guess, you know, in relationship counselling, um, the bedrock would be communication, respect, shared meaning, you know, shared sort of rituals of how you sort of live your lives, um, uh, accepting influence from each other. And um, the Gottmans have just come up with so many different resources that I've found so helpful in my practice. Um, There's this fantastic questionnaire that um, I ask couples to do after the first session, which um, produces this terrific report that allows us to sort of zero in on the the, the key issues that um, they're facing so that we're not sort of, I wouldn't like to say wasting a lot of time, but we're we're zeroing in rather than spending a lot of time trying to discover everything that's underneath the iceberg of what's presenting in the first session. So I do use their anger iceberg handout. Oh, there you go, yes. I see a lot of angry people. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I saw this, um, actually I put it on my um, Instagram page yesterday, this beautiful shot of um, this woman in white sitting next to a woman in black and she said, I've spent years sitting next to anger until I realised today that her name is actually grief. And I thought, oh, oh that's beautiful. That's actually yeah. goosebumps. Oh, it's, yeah. it, it's a lovely image. It's a beautiful image, yeah. I had a conversation with a client actually that almost went like that yesterday. Um, Her anger was definitely coming from grief from childhood. Yeah. She was nearly 60. Wow. Wow. But because she's a woman, she wasn't able to feel anger because anger is not a feminine emotion. It's not allowed. It's unladylike. It's all those things. And, Mm. you know, meanwhile she's absolutely tearing her hair out because she can't express her anger. Because I'm a woman. Oh, okay, okay. So her grief that she hadn't been allowed to experience was had turned into anger and now all she felt was anger for everything. And I have to confess I kind of kind of soul sister with her because yeah. that's where I was about seven years ago. Okay. Mm. So it's an interesting, it's this, 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 this perception that anger is not a, is not a feminine emotion, presents itself to me a lot. In well, well it, it goes to how society reports on it, isn't yeah, it? Oh, absolutely. she's hysterical. You yeah. know, she's out of control. Like men are allowed to be angry. Mm. It, oh, it's, yeah. it's a masculine trait that you'd expect for a man to get angry and defend his rights. But as soon as, you know, this sort of stereotype that if a woman's angry, she's overly emotional and it, all these negative sort of things that we're told about anger in women, yeah. Well, it's ugly. It's an ugly emotion. Oh, yes. In just women. Be a good little poppet and, you know, just yeah. sit down there quietly yeah. and smile. That's right. Give us a smile, darling. Well, yeah. the interesting thing, because as a result of, you know, having all these angry people in my sitting opposite me in counselling room, kind of made me reflect that I was starting to feel like that again, having done quite a lot of work seven years ago. Mm. So I decided I'm going to go and do some ongoing professional development about anger management. I feel I need to know more about it. Mm. Could I find anything available in Australia for ongoing professional development in anger management? 
Nope. I spent five weeks trying to find anger management, ongoing professional development. Couldn't find anything. Ironically enough, that really pissed me off. Yeah. And <laughs> eventually I found something online in America. So, so what, what did you zero in on? Using? For, for, oh, so oh, uh, uh, all, all set. Okay. It, it, it's uh, Australian Counselling Association approved. Hmm. So um, it's very reasonably priced. It's pretty good. And the material has actually been quite useful so far for helping. It's kind of not really telling me anything that I wasn't already aware of, but it's sort of confirming. It's confirming what I already had. Yeah, yeah. Which I kind of forgotten, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. Because we do all we do all this learning, we do all this stuff, we hear all this stuff, and we kind of put all the pieces together, but we don't necessarily know that that's what you've. That's what you've done. That's right. Oh, I know. I actually know a lot. I forgot. <laughs> yeah, it's right. yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's kind of what's yeah. been happening. I'm like, oh, God. But I'll get 10 points. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what I love to draw on for anger is um, dialectical behaviour therapy. Um, there's some really fantastic strategies, um, my favourite of which is um, the dive response so I don't know that one. So, so when divers dive deep into the ocean, um, their heart rate slows down, their whole nervous system calms down, everything becomes a bit more relaxed because probably the shock of the cold water. And what I'll recommend to clients, um, only if they haven't got a heart condition, so there's the disclaimer there. Yes. But, um, and, and probably not in our region in the middle of winter, but if you put your whole face in a sink of cold water and hold your breath for about 15 to 30 seconds, that can trigger the same reaction as the divers get. Um, if that's a bit too nasty and don't want to mess up your makeup or your hair, what you can do is um, keep glad bags of um, water in the fridge, not the freezer because you don't get brain freeze, but yeah. keep <laughs> it in the fridge. <laughs> and this is great for kids too, and I often recommend to schools to have um, these in the fridge. Um, for kids who are escalating, and they've got emotion dysregulation, they can't control their emotions, to grab the sandwich bag full of water, um, put it over sort of, and I'm, I'm acting this out, which you can't see, but, yeah. <laughs> but to put it over your eyes. And the T-zone. Forehead, yeah, the T-zone, yeah. over the top of your cheeks. Yeah. Um, hold it there and hold your breath for 15 to 30 seconds. So, so that's a cool one. Okay. I also like um so that actually that 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 kind of rings true too for the um for the response if you wake in the night with bad dreams where they tell you to splash cold water on your face yeah, yeah. to or to wash your hands with cold water because what it does is it shocks you and it wakes you up properly and it sort of just calms yeah, no, no, that's true. And and I had a client, I, I was telling him about the dive response. He said, oh, actually, that's funny. I put my feet in the cold water when I'm feeling really like I'm escalating and that calms him down. So it, it may not, you know, have to focus on a particular part of the body. Um, right. It could be quite individual. Mm. But, um, the other, you know, intense exercise is great. So if you do like a quick, you know, 20 or 50 metre sprint, um, or, you know, 20 jumping jacks or running on the spot, um, anything that's really intense, that can de-escalate you quite quickly. Um, and paired muscle relaxation. So if you work through your body, often people first, asking people where do you feel anger first in your body? What, what are the early warning signs? Because I'll have a lot of clients saying to me, um, I go from zero to 200, I have no control. 
Yes. And so, well, I'm going to call bullshit on that because there's often an early warning sign. Now, it might be clenched, uh, clenched teeth or yeah. clenched fists yes. or, or your head might get hot. There's always an early warning sign. Mm-hmm. So as soon as that hits, um, even starting with the clenched fists, you clench them and then release and then you clench your forearms and release. And so you're doing everything as a mirror, clench mm-hmm. your biceps and release. And you work all the way through your body. That can help de-escalate. Um, that that overwhelming feeling mm. of anger as well. Mm. Um, I've got a million of them. <laughs> I love well, all these strategies. I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's it's really good because you know it's it, it what what I have what I found as part of my research into trying to find some of this um, ongoing development was that most of the resources that are out there are firmly aimed at men. Mm. A little bit like the domestic violence services are aimed at women. Yeah. Anger is aimed at men. Oh, so a lot of interesting. The, a lot of the, yeah. the, a lot of the print, printed resources will be written in a very masculine tone. And you'll find the dialectical behaviour therapy stuff's not. Right. Um, Marsha Lynham, I'm such a fangirl. I just adore her. Yeah. And I, I love how irreverent she is. But um, I think... Possibly the majority of her clients, um, and, and I'm taking a bit of a stab in the dark here, but I, I think she, she wrote it, you know, for, for men and women, but probably primarily more so for women. Um, I have to check that that hypothesis, but um, uh, in my experience, I've worked with a lot of angry women, and they've got a bloody good reason to be angry. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's not taking away from you're not allowed to be angry. Yeah. Um, it's, it's helping women who can't express the anger to express it, but also helping the women who feel like they've got no control over their anger to feel like they can, you know, have a sense of control, and also to dig deep to mm. find out what what what's the sort of seed that was planted that. You know, and I think sometimes just finding, and also sometimes saying, you know, what anger is actually—it's actually, it's actually a, an emotion that serves us. Yeah, like we have anger for a reason. Like it's—it it protects us. It's—it's it's one of those things that you know we get angry. It protects us. So mm. anger at times is actually pretty healthy. Oh, definitely. It's about knowing. Yeah. The extremes, you know. So, I mean, you know, the the you know the the, the classic example, I suppose, that you could you, you that you that I I've heard many times is that you know somebody cuts you off in traffic, and you you know you 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 shout, and, you know, you call them, you call them a name, and you sort of go, God, well, fucking asshole, blah, 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 and then mm. you drive on because you your body realizes actually I'm not in danger, nothing happened, I can go about my day. Mm. So that flash of anger is that protection of I could. This, these are the bad things that could have happened. Oh, but none of them did, so it's okay. So off I go. If you're then holding on to that anger of that guy that cut you up three days later, going, "Well, Arthur did cut me up the other day," mm. then you probably got an. Then there's probably an issue. Even if you're still holding on to it two or three hours later, it's probably still an issue because it's not that guy who cut you up that's the problem. It could be something else. So, it's so about yeah, finding so, so that. It's the emotion. What's the emotion underneath anger for you in that moment? And and you'll probably likely find it's fear. You, yeah, you were scared. Yeah, you might die. Yeah. And so so the fear mm. then translates into the anger. But yeah. but what's interesting is if you what what I've learned is if 
you do get triggered that way and you have that reaction, you're often getting flooded with adrenaline and cortisol. Okay, so that's going to leave your body. And um, your amygdala is sort of in your brain is on fire and it's all like... Everything's going, you're about to erupt. Um, to, To bring yourself down fast in the car... Even if it's not an anger response, yeah. um, I drive around all the back roads, all the country roads to come home and I'm often sort of, I've got logging trucks overtaking me or veering into my lane and the adrenaline rush that you get is is horrific. But yeah. being able to stop that in its tracks so it doesn't keep sort of yeah. erupting. So what I do is I start naming everything I can see. Yeah. And... It, it almost forces you to be logical and and it can I, I, feel, I feel like I can just sort of nip it in the bud and bring it down fast and be back in my body and yeah. not on the, the roof of the car. Yeah, you know? exactly. Yeah. And be, in, be back in the safe space of being in control of the car. Exactly. Rather yeah. than being the one who's going white knuckle on the Ooh. steering wheel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've all been yeah. there, but most anger comes from fear, as, yeah. as we know. So, you know, but it also comes from disappointment, you know, sadness, grief. It comes from so many different places. Mm. And it's it's also with couples, it's okay to tell your partner you're angry. It's like, I'm really fucking pissed off that you did that. Mm. But that's better than sort of erupting and um, starting to criticise the person. That's not criticising the person. That's telling the person how you feel. And people can then connect to your emotion. Without yeah. getting defensive, and, yeah, yeah. So you mentioned there that the that the um, the lady who invented DBT was irreverent. You also used irreverent as a as a word to describe yourself as well. Tell me a little bit about this irreverence that you have. So, so I, I do tend to swear in my <laughs> sessions, and um, and and I'll, I'll use humour. I think humour is really important to use in an appropriate way at appropriate yeah. times. Um, I might sort of challenge something in a slightly cheeky way. Um, it's not always a deadly, serious, you know, how do you feel about that mm. sort of session. That's not the kind of counsel that I am. Mm. Um, it, it's about rapport and relationship and, and being authentic and real with people. So um, I'm a reverent. I think I bring myself to my counselling sessions. I don't turn into a different person when I'm sitting in the counsellor's chair. Mm. Um I yeah I, I guess irreverence is about being authentic mm. for me. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I was once told I find your use of humour in sessions highly inappropriate. <laughs> when I well, was we at, might not be a good fit then. <laughs> when I was at, when I was when, no 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 well, this is when I was at uni. Oh, this is by one of the other one of my, one of the other students who relished in saying before every single comment that she ever made in my experience as a psychologist in Uh, the UK for eight years before I moved to Australia and had to retrain (laughs) (laughs) so she followed that up with I find the use of your so and as a result of that I that's where my anger came out because I said okay well I won't I won't use I won't use my humor then so I switched humor off and anger went yes you beauty (laughs) (laughs) you've just given me free reign Mm. Well, I'd be very curious about why she's having such a visceral reaction to your use of humour. Yeah, no, I never asked her that because yeah. I just wanted to smash her face in because <laughs> I was so angry. <laughs> <laughs> I never did. No, she was. She, it was a really, it was a really interesting experience for me because that was what really brought my. 
I didn't realise I had a I had a massive anger issue. But she did definitely highlight it. But the, the beauty of it was that I was doing narrative therapy at the same time as, as, a, as a class. Yeah, yeah. And um, I don't think I would have been able to handle it if I hadn't have been, able, if I hadn't have been doing that particular subject because yeah. uh, the, the lecturer of narrative was just absolutely wonderful. Um, and he, he actually is my clinical supervisor and he's mm. also season one, episode four as well. So he actually saw me through that whole process and we've remained in contact professionally since then because he's definitely my go-to guy and he and mm. he know, he knows but I haven't had the issue since because I was able to work through it mm. but had she have not said that to me and at the time I'm like that's ridiculous um and then I did went on a a, a research rampage mm. Mm. of Using humour in sessions. <laughs> oh, okay. I'll prove. I'll prove I'm right. Yeah, yeah. I found a whole book about it, which was really, really useful. Um, and that, as you say, it definitely has its place in session. Mm, mm. It it can it can break that tension when a when a client is really really uncomfortable. The client mm. can use it with the knowledge that you're not going to sit there, you know, po-faced and, you know, sucking eggs. Mm. And it means that if they if they get if they feel the healing power of humor, they can absolutely use it in session if they want to. Uh, mm. Yeah. So I think I think humor is it plays a really important part, I think, in the counseling. Well absolutely. And, and as you say, it kind of gives it gives the client license to be able to be authentic too. Because mm. if if they're um I'm just trying to think. Oh, they're a truck driver and um, they swear a lot and, and, mm. and, you know, every second word is fuck. Um, they come in, they try and be on their best behaviour, mm. okay, to try and sort of, um, I don't know. I'm not Impressed. too sure. Well, they, well, they don't want to upset you. No, not to upset me. And, and then the first fuck might come out and, and there's, oh, I'm so sorry and, and all these apologies. And it's like if I give them licence, you can swear as much as you like. You can say anything you like in this room. Mm. It's yeah. like they can relax and just be themselves yeah. and open up and feel safe to do that. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And they can be their authentic selves. Absolutely. Yeah. Because yeah. I think many, many times um, so people come to us because they haven't been living their authentic selves. Mm -hmm. They've got the mask on. Yeah. And, and they're a chameleon. So, so um, and, and I identify with that. Mm. Yeah. So there were many reasons why I became the chameleon as a young woman. So I could be exactly who you wanted to be, mm. me to be. Mm. Um, I would dress the way that you dressed. I would, if you like mountain climbing, I love mountain climbing all of a sudden. And Even if you didn't like mountain climbing. I hated mountain climbing. But, but I, would, <laughs> I would shift change. I'd be a shape shifter or something, you know, yeah. to, you know, make you like me. Because I had to be liked. Isn't that exhausting? And it's exhausting. And it's about, you know, now through my experience, my own therapy, you know, I've learned a hell of a lot about why that happened for me and um, the freedom of being able to be yourself and the, the joy that you experience when you are authentic with someone that you've just met and they like you for who mm. you are, not for this mask that you've decided to put on to see whether they mm. like that. It's it's so liberating and um, uh, it, it's something that I, I, I prom, you know promote widely in you know my sessions mm. to be authentic mm. and 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 to take that fear away of and I guess the fear is I won't be liked 
you know, that who I am is not enough and I have to put on this mask, you know, whether it's to protect myself or mm. to um, be more palatable to you. Mm. Yeah. That's a really interesting phrase, isn't it, that be more palatable to other people. I can't be my authentic self because mm. you might not like it. And, and accepting that not everyone's going to like us, you know. It, it, you know, there might be clients that don't really sort of feel like I'm a good fit and, and I absolutely embrace that and say, please, if, I, if you don't really feel a synergy with me and you don't mm. feel that connection, it's an absolute waste of time to oh, continue I, with me. I completely agree. I, I have yeah. I have my my first session spiel about confidentiality and privacy and all that sort of stuff and all that. And then one of the things I say is, especially in my short-term sessions when I'm working with employee assistance programs, mm. is I'll say to clients, I'll look at how many sessions they have available to them and I'll say, you have this many sessions. If by the end of this session you do not feel like I am the right person for you, feel free to tell me and make an appointment with somebody else. Mm. Because, Terrific. Because yeah. the, our, the relationship between us is about 75% of the work done. I, I'd go higher. I, I reckon. I, I, yeah. I, I think it's it's higher than that. Um, you can have mm. all the skills in the world, but if you don't have that that relationship, it, it's mm. it's a waste of everyone's time. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, no, it's a it's a really um, it's a really interesting it's a really interesting process. So, just sort of before we before we finish up, getting into counselling, what were you doing before you were a counsellor? Well, I had a many varied career. Um, I started off um, in the music industry um, and I worked my way up from receptionist to national promotions manager and I'd go on tour with all the international bands and organise all their PR and I think... I, actually, I think where my counselling started, my ad hoc accidental counselling started, was when I was in a punk band when I was about 18 to 20 and... Um, every other member of the band was addicted to heroin and cough syrup or something <laughs> and Serapax, you know, and I, I managed to sort of support them all to stop taking drugs, which I have no idea really how I did that in retrospect. But wow. um, unfortunately, once they all stopped taking drugs, they lost their mojo and the band disbanded, but that's another story. Oh. <laughs> did anyone call you Yoko at any point? Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's amazing, no, no, I was the lead guitarist. I was much oh, cooler. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, so I went to the music industry and, and, you know, really through that process there'd be a lot of accidental counselling, you know, with artists who are on the road and not coping with mental health issues. Mm. Um, in um, the HR sort of role that I've done in different industries, like I've worked in fashion, film, um, uh, law and, and welfare and, and worked in many sort of roles that mm. had an HR component. So there are many times when I'd be providing that sort of that counselling role but not in a professional sense. Mm. Um, but I was working at a law firm and I met this clinical psychologist who was also a solicitor at the law firm, Steve, what a great guy. And I um, did some psychometric testing with Steve and, and asked him about, you know, which sort of direction he thought I should go in because I was thinking about becoming a psychologist and going through that sort of... Um, qualification stream and um he said deb nah rats in cages statistics it'll do your head in he said do something more applied it's more in keeping with yeah your shtick you know and he said you're relational you need to be applied and working with people and 
um, he suggested I go to ACAP and do a Bachelor of Applied Social Science in Counselling. Australian Counselling and... Oh, yeah, so the Australian... Um, Gosh, psychology. The, gosh, what is school? it? This Australian College of Applied Psychology. Yes, yeah, that's it. And um, so I did a, a bachelor degree part time over about I don't know six and a half years while I was working, and and that was quite a um, a feat um, to do that when you're working full time. But yeah, um, I had this goal that I wanted to be in private practice by the time I turned fifty, and few days after I turned 50, I moved to Goulburn and set up my private practice and it's been going for three years and going from strength to strength and and now I'm also working with um, Canberra PCYC one day a week and I work with a lot of um, their clients, particularly um, teenagers who mm. have a trauma history yeah. and um, it's so fulfilling and it's everything and more that I could have hoped for. Um, mm. It's a wonderful career. Mm. So I'm sure you've got some famous, famous stories, famous stories oh, of famous people. I certainly do. <laughs> <laughs> maybe might, I can. There might be a, a podcast for another time. Or yeah. maybe, maybe maybe I can tease some of those out for the bonus material for the patron patrons. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so just the very last question before I let you go. Um, you've been doing this for three years now. You've you know you've been through you know, a life of working in the music industry and lawyers and all sorts of things. Mm. Focusing now your future on mental health, what do you see as the future of mental health in Australia? Um, unfortunately, and this sounds, I don't know, I don't know how this is going to sound, but unfortunately it's a growth industry, if I can say that. Mm. Unfortunately, um, mental, you know, mental health issues are going to increase um, because of the society that we live in. Um, fortunately, uh, the stigma is being slowly over time taken away, probably not as quickly in some of the rural areas. Um, but increasingly um, I'm seeing a lot more people come to counselling that would have totally dismissed it in the past. And... Mm. Uh, I think as a society we're, we're starting to recognise the benefits of seeking out mental health support and not just solely being reliant on medications to treat mental health issues. Um, I think um, what else can I contribute on this subject? Yeah. Um, I think it's a really big, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's going to get bigger. And yeah. I think we're seeing more and more, Issues certainly around um, climate worry, climate, yeah. you know, climate distress, and you know what does the future look like? And people are starting to really think about that. Yeah, is there a future? Yeah, is yeah. there a future? That's a hell of a what, question. What have I got to it? be happy about? You yeah. know, the, the, those sort of questions and encouraging people to be, you know, to celebrate now. All That's all you've got. You've got right now. And that, that now is gone. So mm. now you've got right now. Mm. You have to remain as present and celebrate what this is that we have right in front of us because mm. we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. We can't control that. All we can control to the best of our abilities is what's happening right in this second. Mm. Yeah, it's a, it's a big, big question. Mm. But thank you so much for your time today. 
was my pleasure. It was thank fun. You. Thank yeah, you. Thank you. Um, so I would like to thank my guest today, Deb. I would like to thank Nick McCorriston, my podcast guy and sound guru, for doing the sound editing in quite difficult circumstances, seeing as I record in different locations every time. Thank you to you, the listener, for listening, subscribing and rating us on wherever you're listening to this podcast. It really does make a huge difference to other people listening. If you're interested in supporting this podcast going forward, because, you know, it does cost money, (laughs) um, you can go to Patreon and look for Secrets We Share and sponsor a small amount or a large amount, depending on what you want to put in. It all helps. And you do get bonus material. Deb's going to talk to us a little bit afterwards. I would love to hear from you if you're interested in becoming a guest, either as a client or a clinician. And you can contact me through my website, secretkeepercounseling.com.au. And until next time, stay well. Thanks for listening to Secrets We Share in 2019. I would like to wish all of my listeners a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And I look forward to bringing more episodes to you in 2020. See you on the flip side.